So we're continuing our journey through the book of Acts. So I do want to say right up front, there are going to be times in which, in a particular passage, you might think, oh, why didn't we cover such and such? Well, because we're kind of doing an overview, and there'll be times when we come back to certain things afterwards, and we'll make sure that we try to get to all the important parts. Uh, So just so that you're aware, and if you've missed any of the series, of course, it's available through YouTube or our sermon audio. You can get to that through our website. Uh, So if you've missed something, you can certainly catch up with us if you would like to. We're going to return to our map. And if you wanted a copy of that, there are some copies out in the foyer of this. So we, a few weeks ago, we started the second missionary journey. We went up and around. We came across to Europe into Philippi, and then Thessalonica, Berea, and now we are moving on to Athens. So that's where we happen to be at this time, and this is an important, an important city. So this is what uh, it looks like today, 2,500 years after it was built. This picture photograph is being taken from where the Areopagus stood, also known as Mars Hill. And in the distance, uh, you see the Acropolis. That's the mount and the Parthenon. And up front there, you can kind of see the temple uh, to Athena. But there was a lot of things that were there on top of the Acropolis and the Parthenon. And next is is a photo taken from a drone in Paul's day. Um... So you can see in the foreground there, that is Mars Hill. That's the Areopagus. This is the place where Paul is going to be brought to a little bit later in this chapter. And again, you see uh, behind it, you see the, the Parthenon, you see the Acropolis. And when somebody came into this city, you would see the grandeur of the city. Now, granted, at the time of Paul, 500 years after the establishment of all of this, we would say that probably Athens was in its late afternoon of its grandeur. It wasn't at its peak, but it was still one of the most beautiful cities on earth. It still was the center of education, of intellectuals. It was still the center of art and sciences, the the center of philosophy. It was still this key city, was the number one city for all of these things in the world at this present time. And what we're going to find out, though, is that Paul, as he enters into this city, that's, he doesn't talk about any of those things. He doesn't talk about all of the grandeur of the buildings. He doesn't talk about all the philosophers that had come there to teach or had lived there. They didn't talk about the arts and the science. And so that's going to kind of give us this. We've, I've separated into three sections, and this first one is preparation. Now, it's not just for Paul, but preparation for the gospel for Paul and for us. And so this first one is we need the eyes of Jesus. That's our first part. In verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Why was Paul so distressed? As he looked around, again, he does not mention all of these other things that could be mentioned. And as a tourist, somebody first time coming into Athens, instead, he mentions that he is incredibly distressed at what he is seeing. 
So my question to all of us is, as we even begin the process, are we distressed that our world is full of idols, that people are going in a direction contrary to the word of God? Does that distress us? It certainly should, because if you're not at that point, there's not going to be a a significant motivation for you to move forward and reach other people for Christ. If you're not distressed, if you're thinking, well, things aren't so bad, then why would the message be so important? There should be something in our hearts in which we, uh, obviously we look around, we, we understand that unbelievers act as unbelievers, but we should be distressed that there are so many people that don't know the message of the gospel. So many people culturally now that are biblically illiterate, they, don't, they know nothing about the word of God that we carry in multiple volume, multiple times. You know, we have so many in our homes and we can carry them on our computers. So that's got to be this first component. This is what Paul is saying is that this is what is going to be his significant motivation. He is so distressed because of his love for God. And he's saying when you see people that are in, uh, in a situation in which you feel badly for them, you know, your heart feels distressed. That's how Paul was feeling and that's how we should feel as well. The second is the need to, for boldness. Need the boldness to proclaim the message. In 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul did what he typically did when a synagogue was available. He went to the synagogue, but he also went to the marketplace. Uh, that's where he would he have the opportunity to speak with people and to interact with people that knew nothing about Jesus, knew nothing about God, knew nothing about the resurrection that is going to be so important to his message. So that's another thing that we need is that this boldness to be able to proclaim the message. I'm going to review a verse from a passage from last week that we mentioned, but in your hearts... Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So we should always be ready, always be prepared, always ready to be bold to proclaim this. And Paul, when he mentions to the church at Ephesus, he says, pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul mentions twice in this passage about being able to proclaim it fearlessly. If we're honest, most of us, that's that's a hurdle to overcome, isn't it? The fear of man, fear of what the response will be. I, I'm sure, I know I've been there many times, is that you wonder what the response is going to be, and so maybe you don't share as you ought to share. And so this is the Apostle Paul. We've probably been coming through Acts and thinking, well, if there's one person that, you know, he's not afraid to share anything, it's going to be the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is human, just like you and me. And the same struggles, same things that we have, he had. And one of them was fear. 
And in a human sense, he had every right to be fearful. He'd been beaten many times. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been rejected. He'd been mocked. So in a human sense, he had reason to fear. But what are we going to do about that? This is something that has to be overcome, something that we must pray about if we're going to be able to to share. And the solution, of course, is that we must proclaim it. We are not capable of saving anyone. We're not. The people that are responsible as to whether this person will be upset, whether this person will be joyful, whether... Our responsibility is to proclaim the message. That's the solution to fear is just to say, my responsibility as an ambassador for Jesus Christ is to share this message. In fact, as an ambassador, just like an ambassador to a country, an ambassador to another foreign country, he doesn't have the privilege, nor is he given the authority to change the message in some way in order to make it more palatable to this other foreign government. He represents a particular government. His job is to proclaim whatever it is that should be proclaimed. And the same is true for us. Now you might think to yourself, well, if I do this, because I can think of some people in my head right now, you might be thinking, that if I do this, I might lose them as a friend. Is that true? If that person is really your friend, and you're sharing with them the most important thing in your life, and they're no longer your friend, was that ever really your friend? In our, our relationship with Christ, this is another thing that people will say is that, you know, my relationship with Christ, but it's private between me and the Lord. God never intended for your relationship with him to be a private deal. That's never part of it. Part of the responsibility as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, of which every believer is, is the issue to boldly proclaim the message. That's the responsibility. And part of our problem might be, we get not only this fear issue, but we look at certain people and we think, not that person. God can't change that person. I mean, that's just too hard. I mean, of course, that's foolishness, too. He changed you, right? He changed me. Why would it be too hard for God? Again, we, get, we make decisions ourselves as to what God is capable of doing and what he's going to do, and so we limit and just say, you know, this person, I probably, maybe, they're a nice person, but not, not him. Not when I know all that I know about him. That's not how it works. Our job is to proclaim boldly. Another part is that we should refuse to compromise the message. There are many that want to make the gospel easier to digest for people. I've shared before from here that one of the largest churches in the entire country said that you'll never hear a negative word from this pulpit. That's what this pastor said. I said, that's a terrible promise to make. (laughs) So in that sense, we just tell people about the good news and we don't tell them that there is bad news, that that there's sin, (laughs) and that you're destined for an eternity separated from God in hell unless 
there is a change, unless there's a transformation. So people will water it down. And again, this might bring about the element of fear. Because, you know, I don't know if I give them the, the whole truth, you know, that this is going to be problem, problematic, probably. But we don't do that with other things that we're so convinced of, do we? If somebody, if I were to tell you right now that the earth is flat, and I could go on and talk about it for a couple hours, hopefully all of you would say to yourself, that is ridiculous, it's not flat, it's round. I know that, I'm, he's not going to change my mind. I, I will still tell people the earth is round. Although none of us have been out in space, all we've seen are these doctored photos of the, of the earth. And we could go on and on. It's just that, so we haven't personally experienced it from out, outer space, but we all would say this is true. And we're not convinced otherwise. And so this is something we believe to be true. And when we find the gospel that is something of such greater value that we shy back and we, we want to make it a little bit more palatable for people. And what about when you, when you go to the doctor and you're going to have surgery? I've had a number of surgeries in my life, or even when you have a procedure, the, what the doctor will do is he'll sit down with you and he'll say, well, here are the possible complications. Uh, you could have, uh, well, you could die. Uh, you know, you could have this problem, this problem, this problem. And it doesn't matter what the procedure is from whether it's cancer surgery or replacement of a hip or you're having a splinter removed. You could possibly die here while we, we take the splinter out They're doing that for lawsuit's sake, but we understand when the doctor says that, you know, and he's going to tell us these are possible complications. You don't say, don't tell me that. I don't want to know that. Just tell me everything's going to be fine. And we, we don't do that. We understand that there are possible complications. And so we want the doctor to tell us the truth, right? Even if it might be hard to take. It's not a good doctor that comes in and there is a, a terrible diagnosis and he tries to say, everything's fine. So every person that we love and we desire to reach with the gospel, they've got to ultimately be confronted with the gospel message. If we love them. We could put it as simply as that. Is that if you actually care for this person, you'll share the gospel with them. Number four, we must know the audience. Just like Paul. All of these things are true of Paul. We're true of Paul here, and they're true of us now. We must know our audience. In verse 28, um, well, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In that one verse, uh, Paul quotes two Greek poets of the day. And back up earlier, we learn about these are the people that are going to most interact with him are epics, uh, I'm sorry, Epicureans and Stoics. So Epicureans, they derived their worldview from Epicurus, who had lived a couple hundred years earlier. And according to him, in their view of life, the chief goal in life is to attain the maximum amount of pleasure and the minimum amount of pain. Enjoy your, yourself because this is all there is. In a Stoic, they believe that I'm in charge of myself. I will pull myself up by my own boat bootstraps. And if anything good happens in life, it's because I did it on my own. Does that sound familiar? 
Those two worldviews, I don't think anything's changed in 2,000 years. I would say those are pretty much the two most common worldviews today. I want to have as much pleasure as possible and avoid as much pain as possible. And I did it my way. Those would be the same worldviews from 2,000 years ago as we experience today. So Paul, he comes into this area where they did not know anything about Christ and he's going to even talk about some of their own poets and how they were wondering about this world and how the struggle that they were having to try to figure things out. So culturally for us, our poets today might be musicians, popular music. That might be the poets of our day. Their lyrics, their lyrics often reflect a search for meaning. Do you recognize this tune? Do you recognize that tune? Probably a lot of you do. Carrie Livgren of the band Kansas wrote these lyrics in 1977 to a song entitled Dust in the Wind. And the message still echoes in the hearts of many young people today. Here are some of the lyrics. I close my eyes only for a moment and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes a curiosity. Dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away, and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Everything is dust in the wind. Do these, le- do these lyrics mean something to our culture? It must, because on Spotify alone, this song has been listened to 540 million times. Two years after these lyrics were written, July 25th, 1979, Carey's search came to conclusion. He trusted Christ as his Savior. Somebody shared the gospel with him. So in... Popular music in our movies and television shows and the things we interact with, there are opportunities for us to step in because they're looking for meaning for us to step in just like Paul did. Step in with the answer to the, actually what they're actually looking for. What their lives are longing for. Remember, the people that you're interacting with were made in the image of God. There is a longing within them. There's a God-shaped vacuum, as Pascal said, in the heart of every man. They might be searching for it in strange places, but this is an opportunity for us to step in. So when it's appropriate, reference things that they're familiar with. See if you can begin a discussion. And also, this was very interesting, what John Stott said. There is an urgent need for more Christian thinkers who will dedicate their minds to Christ, not only as lecturers, but also as authors, journalists, dramatists, and broadcasters. 
as television scriptwriters, producers, and personalities, and artists and actors who use a variety of art forms in which to communicate the gospel. So we have opportunities through a variety of means in which to reach the generation in which God has placed us. Number five, we should expect opposition. And opposition can manifest itself in many forms for Paul. It could be a physical beating. It could be imprisonment. It could be being shipwrecked. Uh, It could be, uh, in this particular case, it could be mockery from the intellectual elites. That those that were intellectual elites were going to mock him. What is this babbler trying to say is, is how they would phrase it. And we should, not be a, we should not be surprised to opposition either. So if we expect opposition, it's not going to be a surprise to us. And then it won't hinder us because remember, we're ambassadors for someone else. So if they are rejecting us, uh, in, in reality they're rejecting our Savior. They're rejecting the person and the God who can save them. And sometimes these people that are going to be opposition to you, and for many this is what hinders them from moving forward, is their own family. Luke 12, 51 through 53, Jesus said, Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No. I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The reality is, is that the gospel, because it's an exclusive thing, that God is, we heard it already read today, commanding that we repent. And in doing so, this is going to cause opposition, even with those that are closest to us, in our own families. And although it might be, in a sense, painful, it shouldn't stop us from sharing what they need to hear. Eternity is at stake. So what are some barriers? So we had some preparations. Here are some barriers. The first one is pluralism. Pluralism is kind of the theory or system that recognizes more than one ultimate principle. You could have... In pluralism, you could have two, in in some sense, two opposing uh, views, and they can both be somehow correct. It's illogical. For an example, humanists, I've heard this recently a lot, humanists tell us, especially in relation to uh, people's right to choose different things, they talk about human dignity. They talk about human dignity, and that's why people should be able to choose what they want to do. So they'll talk about the dignity of humanity, but then, according to them, we came from nothing, and we're going to go to nothing. So our origin is meaningless, and our end is meaningless, so why do we have dignity? That's contradictory. How did we get dignity if the beginning is meaningless and the end is meaningless? And there are many today that they, take, they want to take the gospel, but they want to add into it the things that they enjoy in the world, or they look for, they want Christ to be added into their things. And so they, they're wondering about life, and so they turn to maybe uh, astrology, 
They, they go, turn to their horoscope or they want to add in what uh, some other earthly philosophy is communicating. And they think that somehow it's compatible. When it is totally incompatible, it's illogical. Any teaching that is contrary to scripture must be rejected. There's, not, there's no wiggle room for that. John 14, 6 said, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So again, he is not a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Acts 4, 11 through 12, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So, so many, that's the other thing. People want to add in and say, well, you can, you can get to God with a variety of world religions. That's ridiculous thought. You have contradictory views. Now, it's possible for two things, both things to be wrong that are contradictory, but it's not possible for both things to be right that are contradictory. What is the right answer? According to Scripture, according to God, it comes through Christ alone. Another barrier is idolatry. This is the big deal that, that Paul is dealing with here in Athens. And then he talked a little bit about these objects made of wood or stone. And you know what? I think Satan would be very happy for us to think that idolatry is merely about these articles of wood and stone. But that's not what it... That's, that, that's just one manifestation in one era of history. But that's not idolatry. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines it this way. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. That is very important. I put it in your notes there, so I hope that you'll take that with you. So Paul introduces what's wrong with people. Out of all the things he could have said, he brings up idolatry. We can think about things that, that are idolatrous that we don't even think about. Covetousness, for an example. Wanting something someone else has, that's idolatry. The thing that, you greatest, that is your greatest fear, that's idolatry. And in Scripture, what is it that most often causes God to be angry? It's not injustice, although there are times in which Scripture tells us God is angry at injustice. It's not about the brutality of a foreign nation coming in and taking over, although that's not good. But it's idolatry that makes God most often angry. D.A. Carson said, the reason why this makes God most angry is because it is the de-godding of God. It's the de-godding of God. You're, not, you're taking away God with idolatry. When Jesus is asked what is the most important commandment, he always said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because everything else is an affront to that. Every sin is a front to number one commandment. Everything else is a replacement for the number one commandment. Whatever it is that, whatever sin it is, it ultimately relates back to number one. 
Not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When, when I was young, and my grandmother was 94, she told me this story. My grandparents owned a, a Cadillac Oldsmobile dealership in our town. I used to hang out there as a kid. And this was before, uh, back when, the story she's explaining to me was back before they had credit cards or you could take out these big loans. Back then, when you wanted to pay for a car, you would, uh, you would come every, every so often, you would come and bring your money to the car dealership, and it would save up until you had enough to actually get the car. So there was a, a teacher in the town, and it was his life's desire to have a brand new Cadillac. And so... He would referee extra jobs and everything, and every week he would come in and he would put money down on this car for years. And then the car was finally done and it was going to be delivered on Monday. He had chosen the upholstery, the color, all the details of it. In refereeing a, a, a game that Friday night, he had a heart attack and died. He had spent his whole life wanting this item that ultimately is meaningless. And put all of his effort into that. John, at the end of 1 John, this is the very last verse in 1 John. This is the thing he tells him at the very end, his last words. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. He's not talking about this wooden object in your bedroom. He's not talking about this stone thing out in your garden. He's talking about the idols of your heart. Anything that, is, that you're putting in front of God. Keep yourself from idols. The God of self. We're not going to talk about this much because this has been around since Adam and Eve. But not putting our peace and prosperity first is always going to be a challenge for all of us. Our peace and our prosperity and our safety, that's always going to be our, the thing that we're going to be battling against. So, just quickly, because this is the message that kind of Paul shared. I'm going to just go through this quickly, because uh, to get the, the message of this, you're going to have to come back on Easter. I mean, you can come back in the succeeding weeks, too. But, uh, so don't wait till just Easter to come back. But that's what we're going to talk about this more at Easter, because the key component that Paul is going to be talking about is the resurrection. But Paul's message in five words. We know that when he went to the Areopagus, he's brought there, is that a typical message historically in the Areopagus lasted between two and three hours. So the part that's here in our passage you could read in one minute. So most historians believe, and I believe that would be the case too, these, this part what's given here is his outline. This is Paul's outline of what he shared for two or more hours until they didn't want to hear anymore. So I'm just going to just read this section. After he tells them that he's going to tell them about this unknown God, verse 24, starting there, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath And everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him 
and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you more again on the subject. So here's Paul's message in five words, and like I said, you have to come back for Easter. Creator and sustainer. These are the sections you can go back and look through. I'll give you a couple verses, Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is, the, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Meaning that if Christ were not holding things all together, right now this universe would be not here. He is the stainer of all things. The ordainer of all things. The Savior, when it says, when you're talking about, well, I don't see where it's talking about Paul. Here being in this part of it, talks about the resurrection. Well, if you go back up to verse 18, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about, about Jesus and the resurrection. Again, this is an outline. We're talking about what Paul has been, he has been sharing all along with all of his audiences. And so this aspect of Savior also talks about the resurrection. We're going to... This is the the verses we looked at last week. And judge. This is, a again, a component because all of these, the Stoics and Epicureans believed, at the end, that's all there is. The reality is, everybody will stand before God in judgment. And that has to be understood. Every person will have to give an account of themselves before God. So as we move into this, just this time of personal reflection. What areas of preparation and what barriers hinder me from being the ambassador God saved me to be? So that's kind of been our focus today. This preparation of being prepared to be the ambassador. And these barriers that are set up that hinder me from also being the ambassador that I should be. Out of those lists, take some time this week to think what, part, what of those Areas of preparation or barriers are hindering me from being the ambassador God saved me to be. The, the title of the message is Live to Share. Remember, it's, it's, not a private, it's not a private experience. God saved us to share his message, for us to take this message to others. Am I building up the structure of the message of the gospel for specific people? Maybe it's not worded the best way after I looked at it later. But what this means is when you, when you meet with somebody and you have friends and people you interact with, you might not, you're not going to be able to very rarely be able to give them the entire gospel at that one sitting. How are you going to build up the structure, that, especially for people that know nothing about it? How are you going to build up the structure so that you're giving them a foundation so that they can then hear the gospel message? This is another important part of it.
So we get to this last one. Our passions for the things that this world has to offer, power, fame, riches, pleasure, collecting items on a bucket list, should not hold the same power over us as it once had. It should be the the reality of the verse at the top of today's notes. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And what I found myself having going on in my own heart is this song that uh, I asked Ty to just at least sing the verse in the chorus a couple times. But are those things, power, fame, riches, pleasures, they should be growing increasingly dim to us. Have you ever felt that? Those things just aren't important to me anymore. So take this with you, this personal reflection as he sings, are the things of earth growing strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace?